Well, good morning. Stand with me, please. I want to welcome all of our guests today. There's a number of people here today that I've never seen before. Not that that means anything, but uh, if you're our guest today, welcome. My name is Jerry, the lead pastor here. Thrilled to have you uh, be a part of it. I want to welcome our, our new interpreter. And uh, hopefully she will not break a knuckle as I preach today, and that will be our prayer for her. And uh, why don't you just turn around and welcome somebody next to you? Somebody that you don't know. Get out of your comfort. Don't shake the hands of people you know. Get out of your chairs. (laughs) And if you really want to make it uncomfortable, hug them. If you have to get over here, I'll give it to you. I don't know what's worse, country music or what's about to take place right here. Here you go. All right, there you go. (laughs) Stay standing with me, please. I want to pray. Lead us in a prayer. And uh, in that process, can we just take a posture of uh, receiving and just put our hands, palms up? And just invite the Lord to work here. God, we just thank you that we can gather today, that we can sing, we can pray, we can encourage one another, and that we can be encouraged by you. So my prayer is that you teach us what it means to meet you in the most unexpected places. And that you would breathe fresh wind in this place and open us up to your spirit. And may everything thought and everything spoken And everything felt be blessed by you. Amen. Grab your seats. Or I should say, actually, take your seats as opposed to grab. Grab is very inappropriate, especially in a church. I'm looking forward to First Wednesday. If you don't know what it's about, basically it's an extended time of worship music. It's, It's where we let our Pentecostal hair down. As you can see, my Pentecostal hair is fairly short. Uh, so it doesn't go down fairly far, but uh, it's just in the time of extended worship and uh, listening to the Spirit, teaching on the Spirit, and if you can make it this Wednesday, it would be great to have you join us. And right now, um, you've walked in here and trying to figure us out, we are walking through the book of Matthew, and we're in Matthew 5, and basically it's the study of the Sermon on the Mount. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus introduces his followers and all those who are listening to his kingdom, to God's kingdom, and And uh, in it, Jesus tells his followers what they need to know as citizens of his kingdom. And for the last few weeks, we've been looking at the Beatitudes, the nine announcements, not teachings per se, but announcements that characterize God's kingdom. And the kingdom isn't something that we qualify for by, by leading this upright life and performing great acts of service for mankind. Instead, the kingdom, as we understood it to be, uh, belongs to those who are spiritually bankrupt, to those who are filled with grief because what sin has done to the world, to those who actually can't handle uh, on their own everything that life throws at them. The kingdom is a place where we finally have justice. But at the same time, 
We will be forgiven of all of our mistakes and misdeeds. And I think this is possible because Jesus himself died for us, satisfying justice and providing us with his own purity. Then allowing us to also enter into God's presence. Absolutely perfect. But in the meantime, we wait for the kingdom. And we we live here on this earth. and, And as kingdom citizens, we work for peace between God and men and amongst men. But as followers of Christ, we also should be expecting that our efforts will be answered with persecution. With insults. With slander. And we'll suffer for for doing the right thing. And we'll suffer just because we're associated with Jesus. That is the life of the Christian. Notice there's, there's nothing objectionable in the Beatitudes that would lead to persecution. The cause of the persecution is made very specific in Matthew 5, 11. It says, because of me. Persecution of itself doesn't bring blessing, but persecution is the cause of righteousness in Christ Jesus. It carries this promise of blessing. Matthew 5.12, the the persecution of the prophets is mentioned. You know, what what makes a prophet a prophet becomes the question I think we're asking. You know, what he does or what he says. You know, what, what makes a prophet? Well, the Old Testament prophets got into a lot of trouble. They got into a lot of persecution but what got them there, their actions or their words? Because some of the things that the Old Testament prophets did was kind of crazy. But what got them in trouble, their crazy actions or their words? In the New Testament, what causes John the Baptist to suffer persecution and death? His actions? You know, he baptized Jesus and other people, for instance. Or was it his words? You know, was it not their, their words? Very important aspect when we're looking at the Beatitudes here. Because of me, that phrase, because of me, it assumes a vocal witness to Jesus. And otherwise, how could the disciples be said to suffer on his account because of him? In other words, they shared. They shared. They talked about Jesus. And in that response, persecution came. So Jesus now, naturally, he goes on and he begins to discuss the issue of living on earth more thoroughly. In the next verses, verses 13 to 16, Jesus uses two metaphors. He uses two word pictures, if I could put it that way, to describe the role of his followers, the role his followers are to play. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, these two pictures tell you what you're here for. Maybe you're not at that place. Maybe you're just not quite sure, you know, with this whole Jesus God thing. And that's fine. Just take it all in and listen. This is what it says. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a big bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everybody in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that what? They may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Oh, that's interesting. So you got to think about Jesus and who he's talking to. It is, he is talking to these unschooled, ordinary people. And if you were to do a character sketch on who's all listening to him, they all have murky pasts. Many of them are impulsive or impetuous. And these people, actually, when I think about it, 
the people that he's talking to, his disciples and others, they remind me of myself. And that's who Jesus is talking to. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You, you, insert your name, are the light of the world. And there's something that I think that we have to notice when we're reading the scriptures here. There's a difference between from and of. Jesus doesn't say that you are from the earth. You know, you are from, you know, a, a sense of smallness, a sense of frailty. No, he says you are salt of the earth. And earth and world in this are global terms. And so you got to think about it. After all what we have discussed these past few weeks on the Beatitudes, how does Jesus want to change the world? Well, really, you take a look around at all these people he's talking to. Think about it. Maybe you can identify this. He wants to use the grumpy, the self-centered, the questionable past, the impulsive, the impatient, the ordinary, the unschooled people. He's talking to those people. And this message that begins this thing called the Beatitudes, it's to who? What have we said? To all the losers, the lowlifes, the zeros, the nobodies, those who feel that they're passed over. Hey, it's for all of us. God is with you. God is on your side. But it's also you and you and you and you. You is how I want to change the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Salt, as we should know, is a very useful commodity. Trade is built on it. Wars have been fought over it. Um, Taxes actually have been resisted on it. Films have been made. I actually was going through some documentary films that they've made on salt. Quite interesting. And it, it uses a range from being a condiment to being a preservative. And that no one time can any household do without it, unless, of course, you have an order from your doctor not to. And salt, obviously, was very common in Jesus' day. It was a valuable substance. Uh, again, it was used to flavor food, but it was also used to preserve foods. And you think about it, where Jesus is teaching, and he's talking about salt. The Sermon on the Mount, he's by the Sea of Galilee. What the fishermen used to do it there is that they would catch their fish, and they would pack them in salt. And then they would send the fish to market to, in Jerusalem, and that was a preserving effect, right? Because they didn't have Refrigerators, the salt kept the fish from spoiling. And that's the image that Jesus is using to describe to his followers. You are the salt of the earth. You add distinctiveness to the flavor of life on earth. You help preserve, think about it, human society. You help keep it from spoiling. Gosh, that's hard to understand. Many of the world's hospitals, many of our world's orphanages, universities are open. Who? In the name of Christ. Missionaries have brought literacy, medicine, education, relief from addictions, rescuing those who are being trafficked as human slaves, the equal treatment of all people on this planet because they're all equally valuable to God and practical training to millions of people in the name of Christ. Believers in particular have been extremely generous, Joy Basket insert there shamelessly, in their gifts to the world. Why? Because they see themselves as salt, as making a difference. The Bible has been a reliable moral compass that has served mankind for thousands of years, despite many attempts to distort it or to misrepresent the scriptures. 
And the Bible, when we take a look at it, it actually teaches the principles of honesty and fidelity and respect for each other, respect for property. It teaches justice, generosity. It teaches non-retaliation. And the Bible promotes peace and it encourages men and women to treat each other with kindness and with patience and with compassion and with understanding. And that is the salt in our world. And those who follow Jesus then take the words of the Bible into practice. And when we do that, we have this tremendous impact in our world for good. They bring the flavor. Now, if we follow Jesus' teachings, one writer said this, we'll be a moral disaffectant in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing, or non-existent. So as believers, if we take Jesus' message seriously, we will greatly benefit the world. Think about that. You have something to contribute to the world in which God has placed you. We will do the kingdom work by, and hear me carefully, by the good deeds that we do, the good things that we do. We are to be a preservative. We are to be a flavor enhancer. And as you follow the teachings of Jesus, pursuing good deeds and personal purity, you make this sorry world a much better place to live. Christians are called to be salt. But salty, in our world today, is not a good term. It actually means angry and other things. Ironically, however, that does describe some Christians in our culture. And I think it's where we get it wrong. And some Christians have become salty when they're confronting sinners and condemning their behavior. I don't know if you've seen that. Street preachers or protesters or boycotters. The list goes on, right? Does it not seem strange to anyone else that some Christians organize protests about homosexuality and abortion and other things like Starbucks cups, but we don't call for protests and marches against greed and gossip and adultery and lying and self-righteous pride? Or is it just me? You know, my question is, by protesting and marching with inflammatory and offensive placards, what I have seen with my own eyes, by writing unkind editorials, blogs, Facebooks, idiots, boycotts, you know, we boycott whatever business for whatever reason, by treating this as a war of us versus them. Think about it, people. Are we effectively making this world a purer and more palatable place? I think not. And I, I really need to be honest. I'll never forget, I was in one church and I was told by somebody at the church, you know, Marilyn Manson's coming to town, why don't you come and we're going to protest. And uh, I looked at the person, I said, why don't you just buy a ticket and go build a relationship with somebody who's going to the concert? I actually think that these protests do very little to promote morality. And I also believe that on the other hand, these protests and things when we act like this do much to communicate a false impression to the world that Christians are unloving, that we are unkind, that we are bigots, that we, are, we hypocritically believe that we are morally superior and are selfish and insensitive enough to think that our views of right and wrong should be forced upon other people. 
And I think what happens now when we do stuff like this, when we get involved like this, when we put posts on Facebook and other stuff in multimedia like this, that we enforce to the world around us that we as Christians are salty and not salt. You got me? Do you hear the difference? You know, sometimes the desire to promote morality in our society motivates the Christian community. You know, we we get together to try to legislate against sin. I understand that. I believe that there's a, a legitimate place for morality in politics. Don't get me wrong. But I also believe that we need to be very careful. We need to be fined. We need to be uh, fair and kind in some of the laws and th- that the Christian community has promoted and endorsed. We need to be very careful. And I think it's interesting to notice that even Jesus didn't approach the issue this way that we do. He didn't tell us anything that would indicate that we should do something like this. John writes, you know, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. If, if anybody had the standing to condemn the world over its sin, it was Jesus. And yet he didn't. And, and if this is what we're, we're supposed to be doing, then, then why didn't Jesus do it? And why didn't he specifically tell us to? The, the verse immediately follows a, a verse that you probably heard of. It says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So it's clear that in the Bible, the message of Jesus and his followers to the sinful world is one of love and forgiveness, not one of condemnation and confrontation. But you might be saying, yes, yes, but the message is all about forgiveness. But these people don't know they need forgiveness and they won't know unless I tell them. Well, you know what? I think the Bible actually is very clear. It says that that job belongs to somebody else. That it's actually the Holy Spirit's job to convince people that they are guilty and need forgiveness. That's not our job. That shouldn't be our approach. Instead, we are there to offer forgiveness to those who recognize they need it. We are to be his ambassadors, right? We looked at that last week. Well, how are they going to know? Give them a Bible. Offer the study of the scriptures with them. You know, preachers in the early church took a very much different approach than the protesters of our day. They lived in a society that was incredibly corrupt. A society in which abortion was commonplace, alternative lifestyles was the norm. That was just typical. And yet the New Testament says absolutely nothing about protests and confrontations and boycotts or petitions against sin in society. And when speaking to unbelievers, they didn't condemn their sin. They didn't even try to point out how sinful they were. They only stressed that God was offering them forgiveness and pleaded with them to turn to God to accept the forgiveness of their sins. There are many passages in the New Testament that confront sin and talk about how inappropriate it is. But you know what? The majority, almost, almost, almost all of those are addressed to Christians and needs to deal with the issue of sin in the church amongst believers. Isn't that interesting? They don't reproach unbelievers for their sin. Rather, they plead with them to accept forgiveness if they recognize that they need it. The more harsher words is for what's going on within the church. And salt, as it's used elsewhere in the New Testament, is a word picture for speech rather than good works. Again, Colossians 4, Paul calls for gracious speech that is seasoned with salt. The context is speech that, makes, that brings alive, that, that points people to Jesus. Uh, without question, the context of both salt and light is that Jesus is calling us followers to be a difference in both our speech and our action. How are we being a difference in the way that we talk and the things that we do? 
The end of the verse in Matthew says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by man. Again, the salt back in Jesus' day was, was not the kind of pure salt that we have today. It was mixed with some sort of impurities. Uh, they would get salt out of the Dead Sea, but there was also this other white powder that was found on the coast of the Dead Sea. And if you mixed the two together, and if you actually exposed it to moisture for a period of time, the salt would actually leach out, and then all you were left with is this sand-like, this white substance. And it was worthless. It lost its salty characteristics, and it no longer tasted good. You wouldn't put it on your food. It would, it would no longer preserve anything. You just throw it out on the ground. It returns back to the dust. Many of you, if not all of you, and some of you in practice this, you put rice in your salt, right? Your salt shakers, you put rice, and the rice pulls out and absorbs the moisture, right? Well, the, a picture of a salt shaker where all the salt has been shaken out and only the, only the rice is left in the shaker. What happens then? Well, you get frustrated, right? There's nothing. It's just, it's just a waste. Why do I have it in there? I don't know why. It's, there's, there's, and that's the idea here. It no longer, it's no longer real salt. It's actually just, you don't eat the rice. You don't unscrew the, the lid and pour the rice on your, your meal, do you? That's what Jesus is saying. You know and this idea of being tasteless can actually happen to us too as Christians. If our goodness is compromised, if we stop doing good or if we permit moral corruption in our own lives, then we cease to become salt. We cease to have that purifying and enhancing effect on the world that Jesus intends his followers to produce while they're here. And many times we become simply salty to the world around us. So if you're identifying yourself as a Christian, are you salt or salty? How many of us know some real salty Christians? You know, one of the biggest excuses that many unchurched people use to justify their lack of interest in the things of God, and maybe that's you here today, I don't know, but hey, look at the fact. Jerry, the church is filled with hypocrites. Yes. And unfortunately, although it that's an excuse, and, and, and again, excuses are often based on facts. The fact of hypocrisy is seen in our actions, in our attitudes. It's especially heard in our speech. This week I had probably, okay, I'll just say this. I've probably had the hardest 10 days of my life in ministry ever. Ever. So if there's ever a time to pray for your pastor. And on a separate note, this week I had a, a, a meeting with a few non-believers and somebody from our church here. And we met right out in the foyer. They mentioned a, a, a Christian businessman that we both know, that we both actually know personally and in that conversation, when that name come, came up, in that meeting, it was said out loud regarding this businessman, this Christian businessman and his practice, and I quote, he is no Christian. I was stunned. I, I couldn't respond. I, you know what? Because of what I know, I couldn't even defend my brother. Because they were right. What, 
when the world looks at us and says he is no Christian, we lose our flavor. I, I, I can't articulate the feelings of shock. I think I, it looked like I got hit with a, a baseball bat when that came out of their mouth. See, the, the world often hears our hypocrisy when we sit together at lunch and we share the local gossip about our, father, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, right? The world often tastes the bitterness of our hypocrisy when we express our racism or when we tear down somebody just because they're different from us or they have different theological views from us. All too often, uh, our own, we are our own worst enemy when we talk in this world. As a matter of fact, we are more like sheep in wolf's clothing. So that brings us to the question of what we need to do in order to be salt of the earth, you know, in order to have a purifying and palatable influence in the world. And of course, where do we get these ideas from? We go back to scripture. That's the key. The Bible is the key to where we go. Philippians talks about us. He says, do everything without complaining or arguing. Now, that's pretty difficult, isn't it? It's freezing cold. Oh, so cold. It's like 30 degrees. Oh, it's so hot. And everybody, like, you live in Manitoba. You know? So that you may become blameless and pure. Interesting. These words that he used. Children of God without fault in where? A crooked and depraved generation. The word in there actually means in the middle of. It's like, has this idea of salt being rubbed into meat. So when you live in the middle of a crooked and depraved society, it can be difficult to maintain that kind of moral goodness. It's hard for us. It is. But that's, that, Jesus teaches us to pursue that. It's easy to let our moral standards lapse. It's easy to take care of ourselves instead of serving others. In other words, it's easy, actually, when you think about it, it's very easy for us to lose our saltiness. But if we really want to have a moral influence in this world, the biblical way to do it is actually live moral lives ourselves. Research shows that the incidence of adultery, of premarital uh, and extramarital sex and divorce is roughly the same inside the church as it is in society as whole. Christians can be ungenerous, stingy, hard to please. We had another businessman in our community. He said this to me. When I go to work in somebody's home, I hate to see Christian symbols on their house because I know they're going to be a pain to work with. (laughs) What does that say about us? I don't like doing personal business with Christians. Why? It's a shame that often society can't tell the difference between the behavior of a Christian and the behavior of a non-Christian. And if followers of Jesus are to be salt of the earth, then we have to begin working on our own morality. And personally, I think we actually have more than enough to keep us all very busy. But God has also called us to do something else. He's also called us to be bearer of light rather than propagators of darkness. In fact, he's calling us to be light in this world of darkness. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do the people light the lamp, put it under the bowl. Instead, they put it in its stand. And he goes on and he goes on. And light is a very common metaphor throughout all the Bible. And along with darkness, light is often used to contrast knowledge versus ignorance. And here, it 
almost certainly stands for the world's opportunity to perceive the truth about Jesus. You are the light. They're going to see Jesus through you. The world is in the dark about God. But Christians, when we come in, we turn the light on. And the light allows people to see. And Christians allow the world to understand how much God loves them and what Jesus has done to restore their relationship with him. And being the light of the world, we actually carry out the same purpose that Jesus had in coming to earth. The Gospel of John says that when Jesus was born, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Jesus himself said, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He also goes on to say, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And then he also said, put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. And so Jesus comes to earth to show men that God loved them and demonstrated that, you know, what he was prepared to do to have a relationship with them in a dark, dark world. And so that, re- that, that revelation was like this piercing light. But now Jesus is gone and he's left the earth and he's left us to fill this role. It's our job as believers to fill this role of bringing light to the world, of bringing the world the knowledge of God's love and God's forgiveness. And this is what Jesus means when he says that you are the light of the world. This is our responsibility. And he goes on to add that no one in the right mind would light a lamp in the darkness and only cover it again. The bowl that he's talking about was, was actually a fairly big bowl. It was used for measuring grain. And the purpose of lighting a lamp or a candle, when we do it, is so that everybody could see. If you put it under something or something over top of it, then the whole purpose is defeated. But the light is there to light up the room. And now we light candles not just to light up a room. We light candles to, for what? What do we light candles? You and I, we're lighting candles in our office. Not that we sacrifice things, but we, you know, we light candles. Why do we do it? Ambiance. What else? It's relaxing. What else? There's what comes out of the candle. Stinky stuff. Right? And what does that stinky stuff do? It wafts down the office and it irritates absolutely everybody else. But isn't that interesting that we can light our candle or we can light our light and it can actually make a difference further down the area? And I hear it all the time. Jerry! You lighting candles? <laughs> yeah. It affects the whole office. But that's who we are to be when we are the light of the world. So in the face of persecution, a Christian might be tempted to hide their identity. But Jesus said, if people don't know about our relationship with Jesus, then it defeats the purpose of our time here on earth. And that's the way it is with our witness in the world as believers. If we're going to be effective in the role that Jesus gave us as followers, then we need to be visible. And a lot of people, have they struggle with that. You know, we must allow ourselves to be visible into the world around us. And, and I think you've got to notice the emphasis of what's being said here, too, that you're, we're allowing the world to see our good deeds. Now, deeds don't get us to heaven. It's not saying that at all. But deeds bring glory to Jesus. The hope, the goal is that people will give praise to God. And this is an important point to catch. The goal is not that people will say, hey, look, you know, look how great those, those, those Christians are. Look at all the wonderful things they do to help people. You know, look how, they, you know, how honorable their, their lives are. Rather, the goal is, what a great God they follow. 
God has called us to carry the light into the darkness of the world. He has called us to be change agents. And he wants us to shine his light so, so men and women can see and be changed. Unfortunately, some of us miss it. And instead of shining bright, we, we end up covering ourselves and we isolate and, and I, I began to think about this for quite some time. And, and, and it's probably first started in this attempt to preserve our own goodness, to preserve our own selves. We, we you know, look at James 1.27. It says, you know, we've got to be careful of not being polluted by the world. And so we take passages of scripture and we sort of build our own theology around little bits and pieces. But in an effort to do things differently than the world, what we have done, especially in our Christian communities, we created organizations that allow us to spend time with believers instead of unbelievers. So besides various church activities, we created, what, Christian businessmen directories so that we could do business with other Christians. If you're worried about the guy I was talking about, come talk to me after. I'll glad you drop his name. Um, That was a joke. Now I'm going to step on some toes. We built Christian schools for our kids to... Or we school them at home. Soon, many other organizations started popping up, right? We have Christian radio stations. We have Christian publishers. We have Christian counselors. We have Christian camps. We have Christian musicians. We have Christian newspapers. We have Christian artists. We have Christian television. We have Christian movies. And the more immoral the world around us has become, the more alternative Christian organizations have multiplied, correct? Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with any of these. Please don't get your shorts in a knot and walk out of here this morning that way. They all have their advantages, without question. They all have their place. My point is, they all tend to isolate believers from the culture at large. And although Jesus did not pull us out of the world, sometimes we actually have ended up pulling ourselves out of the world. And while there's nothing wrong with these Christian alternatives in and of themselves, the more occupied we are with other believers, the less involved we are with unbelievers in our world. And the more isolated we become from those people in the world that Jesus said, go be a light to. That's the reality. So we need to work at building new connections with folks that God intends to see, us to see. Isolation makes us invisible. It hides the light that we're meant to shine. If our lights are gonna be seen by the world, then we must be involved in the world and not isolated from it. And many times, well-meaning Christians have tried to spread the good news about Jesus with very persuasive words. Very persuasive words. You stop and think about it for a moment. How do most non-Christians hear the message of the Bible today? You know, it's, it's true, maybe they, they walk into a church and they, they hear it, hear the gospel. But let's be honest, in today's day and age, most do not. But the most prominent tools that people see, the number one is TV evangelists and preachers. The second one would be the the news broadcasts of um, big big type evangelist gatherings like, you know, what Franklin Graham had in Vancouver just recently. But then there are these things called gospel tracts or books or people who go to door. And depending where you are, there's also the street preachers, Right? And once again, there's nothing wrong with these tools of communication. It's just a tool. And I think each of them have helped people meet and trust Jesus. And it doesn't matter whether you like those tools or not. I'm just telling you that's just the way it is. And, and uh, 
But you know what else? Each of them tends to be actually very impersonal and very non-relational. And each of them sort of relies heavily on words instead of example. But listen to what Paul says about his ministry amongst the Corinthians. He says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and pervasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. It wasn't that Paul was just speaking to them, but he certainly explained the gospel, but he lived out the power of the gospel in his own life, right in front of them, right where they could see it. There was words and actions. And again, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with some of these things that we do to introduce people to the message of Jesus. What I'm saying is that it's not enough. If we're going to be lights of the world that God intends us to be, then we need to be seen and not just heard. To be visible, we need to get up close. We need to get personal. And I think that when, whenever these, these tools we've mentioned, you know, um, incorporate personal contact with a believer and unbeliever, then we tend to have a greater impact. Let's continue to use whatever tool will help somebody discover Jesus. I'm all for it. Let's get out but rub shoulders, though, with the people of the world. Many of you work in environments every day with people who, who need to hear about Jesus. Some of you belong to various clubs or sports teams or whatever. You have a great opportunity to, to get to know people and allow them to see the light of Jesus in you. And when Jesus left us here, that's exactly what he intended. That's exactly what he's teaching us. You listen to the words of his final prayer in John 17. Read the whole context. I'm not going to, but I will remain in the world no longer. But they are still in the world. And I am coming to you. So he's talking about his disciples still being in the world and he's coming to the Father. He goes, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but rather Jesus' prayer for the disciples is that he would protect them from the evil one so that they're still in the part of the world. As you sent me into the world, I now send them into the world. Again, that term world is, is global. You are the light of the world. He is sending them into the world to be the lights, right? But they're to be protected from the evil one. And he goes on in verse 20, he says, but my prayer is not for them alone. It's not just about the disciples. It's not just about my followers. Look at the, about this. Look at verse 20. I love it. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. If you're a believer here today, Jesus is praying for you because you have believed in Jesus through the message of the disciples that has been passed down through hundreds of years. Isn't that awesome? Oh, okay, it's just me. I'm sorry. Jeez. Gosh, I, my mind blows up when I read John. It's exciting. Jesus doesn't ask us to be removed from the world in which we find ourselves, but rather we would be protected from the evil one. The place we belong as Christians is in the world, right in the middle of it, involved every day with people who need to see the light of Jesus in us. And I think it's clear that the normal avenue for the truth of the gospel is through relationship. It doesn't need to be this long-standing relationship, but it needs to be relational. And we need to care for people just as they are. And this message is communicated in both words and works. Early Christians let the people see them live life. They demonstrated on a day-to-day -day basis what life with Jesus looked like. And when you live your life in front of others, that goodness, it, it comes out. It will cause others to desire that same kind of life that we have. So we need to be ready for the day when somebody, drawn by our goodness, because they're watching us, they're creeping you out on Facebook, they're, and it comes to the point where they ask us where we got it. 
And then we need to be ready to be able to tell them where, where they can too. We need to point people to Jesus because it isn't enough to let people see our goodness. We need to let them know that Jesus, that it's in Jesus that makes us good and produces this goodness in us, even though many times we feel like sinners, yeah? That we just don't measure up. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless, pure children. Without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. That last line, you shine as you hold out the word of life. It's so important that we follow up our good behavior, our good deeds by pointing people to Jesus Because if we don't, then we're shining our light on emptiness instead of shining our light on the world's only hope. Oh, they'll know me by my deeds. No, it's, it's actions, it's words, it's both. They go hand in hand. God has called us to carry the light into the darkness of this world. He's called us to be change agents. He's called us to shine his light so that men can see, see what's wrong and be changed. The question is, how do we consistently do this thing that God has called us to do? And let me wrap it up this way by saying this. That Jesus does not say you should be the salt of the earth. Jesus does not say you should be the light of the world. And since you're not, you know, I've sort of come and I'm going to give you a law so that you can be it. He doesn't say that. He doesn't announce to his listeners what they are not and what they should be. We've already covered that these last few weeks. He doesn't bring them guilt Rather, he brings them, and I think this is the beauty of the Beatitudes, he brings them an empowering declaration of who we are. We do not bring a bunch of messages that must be done so that God will bless us. Rather, Jesus, he brings identity and empowerment now. You know, that's why at times we pick up on those religious voices that bring guilt and shame and a profound sense of what we're not. Jesus does not bring should. You know, if you were just more holy or if you're just more righteous or if you just read your Bible more, if you were just more moral, then, you know, maybe I'd be able to use you like salt or light. No, he says you are. Right now, exactly as you are. You are. Think about this, people. You are salt and light. Look at somebody and tell them that and mean it. Try it right now. Look in their eyes and say, you are salt and light. And how do you feel when people say that to you? You got to be kidding me. Jesus is not saying to us today that in our home or in our work or in a school environment, you know, he's not just saying to us, you know, I could really use you if you just, you know, hey, Jerry, you just need to No, he brings an announcement. And I think this is the beauty of the Beatitudes where he just says, you are. And he says it to whom? A bunch of hodgepodge, riffraff sort of people from all over. And in that mix was the sophisticated, it was the moral, religious, schooled people. But it was also the broken and the beat down. And he's talking to everybody. He says, you are the salt and the light. You are the salt and the light. And you got to think about it, and we'll get at this in a, uh, next week or the week after. 
the religious establishment is probably getting really upset at this point because they're kind of going like, really, Jesus, you cannot launch a movement with people like this. Look at all the losers that are around here. You can't change the world with these messed up people, these morally down people, these, these losers. You can't do that with people like this. You need us religious people. And Jesus is announcing to everybody, he says, you are the plan. I know what you're like. Think about it. He's saying this to you and me. I know your past. I know what you're not good at. I know what you have done. I know what you don't know. I know about, insert your secret sin here, but hey, you are my plan. Isn't that freeing? Jesus' plan to revolutionize the world is by empowering you and me. And this is what God has been up to all day long. Ordinary, average sorts of people empowered to change the world. The core of Jesus' message is that God Almighty wants to transform the world. The core of Jesus' message is that God Almighty wants to transform the world with people like you and me. You think about that. How many years have you been conditioned to think that you are not the type of person that God can use to carry out his plan? Especially if you've grown up in a, a brow-beating church. And yet the whole point of being a disciple in this age and, and, and being the sort of person where God can use, regardless of our background or wherever you live, you can bring the flavor. You can be salt and turn on the light. So wherever you are, do you intend to be flavorful? You think about it, man. Salt just enriches everything. I love to cook. I, as a matter of fact, I, I don't cook with a whole lot of salt. I cook with a whole lot of spice. It's very different. My wife, on the other hand, before she even goes into my food, what does she ask for, Josh? Where's the salt? What an offense. <laughs> it drives me crazy. But you have to think about it. You know, you th- oh, man, I'm even just getting hungry thinking about salt. Because salt is good. Right? It makes everything good. As a matter of fact, you're going to go to lunch today and you're going to hold the salt shaker and go, this is good. And you're going to add. And some of you, your blood pressure is going to go through the roof and blame me, but that's a... See, God wants us wherever we are, right where we are, in the circle of life, wherever we live, he wants us to bring the flavor. He wants us to bring enrichment. He wants us to bring uh, preservation. And there's something really extraordinary about a Christian who is connected to their Lord, who's connected to their community, to their fellowship, who knows the Lord, who's walking in the Spirit. There's something powerful. There's something beautiful. There's something sweet when you're talking to those people because they get it. They are the salt. They are the light. And God wants us to turn on the lights where we are. And that's really the call to this generation that, that God's only plan for us is to tell those in our world about the kingdom in, in, in this midst that we find ourselves, that we are the salt, we are the light, we are living proof. And they look at us and they say, okay, now I see and I understand. And if we're going to be salt and light, then the, the, the fact is, you know, it's one thing to hear it and, and say, oh, yeah, 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 I like that. It, it takes me as I am. Well, then... We need to open ourselves up to this great truth, much like what you've done this morning when we stood and prayed with our hands extended. The great truth that as we open up ourselves to God, that God wants us to use you in this way, so you need to open yourself up right where you are for him to use you in any way that he wants to use you. Your openness, 
your disposition, your inclination to be open to him allows him to use you as his vessel to make uh, himself known where you are. And as you open your heart to God, I believe that God will use you to the, to the degree that you are open. You with me? Yeah, God, just, just use me a little bit. Okay, he'll, he'll take whatever you give as long as you're opening. But if you're opening yourselves wide, God's going to use you. Are you open? And I believe very simply, and I, 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 our culture is demonstrating differently, but I believe that coming together weekly and worshiping like this is one of the most important things that we do to make ourselves open to God. We come together like this and we put ourselves in the position, why? Because we want to hear from, you don't want to hear Jerry. I, don't want, I, I hope you don't come here to hear Jerry. I, come to hear, I hear that all the time. I've come to hear you speak. No, come and hear Jesus because I'm not a good speaker. It's Jesus. And what is Jesus telling us to do? And when we come here together like this, we put ourselves in the position actually to hear from the Lord. So have you come today, my question is, have you come today to expect the Holy Spirit to speak to you? Because you should. Because if you're the salt and the light of the, uh, of the earth and the light of the world, then you understand that God Almighty wants to say something to you so he'll use me um, uh, and to speak possibly. Are we open to it? But I go so further and I say it's everywhere around us. And yet, even if we're not aware of it, we, we still can miss it. First Peter says, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a, whole, uh, a holy nation. God's special possession. That's you that you may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. So as believers, wherever we are, wherever we go, we are salt and light. And as a representative of God, being given life that I can some way offer myself, and I, I, I am, I do, I want to offer myself to him. And you, if you think about it, are his only plan. There is no plan B. You're it. <laughs> And God has placed people in your life for a reason. And you are to be salt to them and light to them. What if we are the only gospel our friends, our workers, our family members see? What are you showing? How are you tasting? And I think our openness is the key to saltiness. You with me? Openness is the key to shining a light. Our message needs to be, God, use me. Here I am. I'm not much, but, it, but God, use me. Here I am. And when our hearts are open, what's the natural response? Our hands become open. And God is able, honestly, to use us in dramatic ways. And you'll, you'll become at the disposal of other people being used by God. And there is no plan B. Whew. In April, our church is... Uh, going to do a week of prayer during Holy Week, and we want to invite you to be a part of that. Basically, it just involves showing up and praying from Monday, April 10th to Thursday. On Friday, uh, Bad Friday, as I affectionately call it, we're going to do what is known as a Tannenberg Gathering, and again, this is a ancient uh, Christian good Bad Friday celebration that makes use of gradually diminishing light through the extinguishing of candles through our liturgy. And uh, events that uh, covers the events from Palm Sunday 
right through to Jesus' burial. And then we have Easter Sunday. Bring some friends. We're going to celebrate. You know, this is a very easy opportunity to make contact with non-believing friends and build a relationships in a very normal, non-threatening way. Nine easy words. You hear me say it all the time. Would you like to come to church with me? It's, it's a great opportunity to be a visible Christian to your friends, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your relatives. Let them see the light of Christ in you and then be available to talk. And, and may, maybe they'll just ask you how they can find that, the light that they see with you if you have them over, if you go for drinks, you can do whatever you want. And all I'm asking is that you begin to pray about what God would want you to do and start thinking about who he's brought into your life to see your light and to taste your salt. Good enough? I love this community. And, and, and I see, it's taken years, <laughs> but I see stuff happening. I keep preaching the same messages over and over again. People don't get it. I never have, I've heard that before. Yeah, you should have. I probably preached it five times. But when you see the lights going on, you see the change is happening. I'll tell you, that's so encouraging. Oh God, there is no part of life that you do not touch, infusing your rich fragrance. It's gritty and real, getting in and underneath the surface, drawing out and lifting up, winding love around until defenses are lowered, until barriers are broken and the power of your love reveals the beauty you've intended for all your children. May our actions draw attention to you, to the richness that you bring in all of life and the abundance that you share, setting the scenes for us to share as well. Help us to bring light to all the darkness of life, spreading hope for a better world, a world where justice is made real by your children living together in harmony. Help us to bring salt into the blandness of life. Oh God, encouraging vitality and the joy in living in a world that dares to hope for the future that you promised where all your children will know themselves loved and valued and treasured and created in your image, bringing you the glory forever. Amen. And as we began this gathering with our hands extended, I want to close it the same way. In ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. Ah, listen to this one. The Spirit of God is upon you and has anointed you. You are the salt of the earth and you bring light to the world. You are not too young, you are not too old, you are not too rich, you are not too needy to bring good news to the impoverished, to give a hand to the brokenhearted, to live out freedom and pardon through the gifts that have been given to you. So remember, Soul Sanctuary, to pack peace in your toolbox, hope in your briefcase, love in your lunchbox, and may integrity, honesty, and joy be the designer wear of choice. Do not be frightened for you are not alone and the God in whose image you are made will walk with you and guide you today, tomorrow, and every day. Amen. Be blessed. We will see you next week.